are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. serve as a hospitality team leader and also serve on the worship band. The teaching text for today is Psalms 119, 9-16. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your command. I have hidden your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in the following and following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with this. Heavenly Father, we pray over Lamont's brother. Thank you that he is our family and that he shared that with us. And I just want to pray in the name of Jesus for healing. That's what we desire. And you say that your children uh, can come to you with the shameless audacity of kids and present our request to you and that you're a father that knows how to give us good gifts. So we ask for his full recovery, for his full healing, and we also entrust him into your hands. We know that you are his true and everlasting father, that you love him and know him by name, that you knit him together. And so we trust him with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what you're holding when you're holding the Bible is a window, a biography, and a person. Remember that? That's where we started this teaching series. It is a window to glimpse into another world, an invitation to climb out of the warehouse and discover the vast expanse above. But what if I'm a same-sex attracted male reading New Testament sexual ethics from my college dorm room, and the words on the page make me feel like an imposter in God's world, like I don't belong there. What then? Scripture is a biography. I'm in the story, and before the creation of the world, I was a thought on his mind and a word on his lips. In the words of the Psalms, every day was laid out for me in his book before one of them came to be. But what if I'm a 33-year-old female who's in intensive psychotherapy trying to process the trauma of an abusive stepfather? Were those days in his home laid out for me in God's book before one of them came to be? And if that's the case, are you seriously asking me to trust the God for healing now that chose not to rescue me then? The Bible is a person. It's God revealing himself to us and coming to dwell among us. But what if I'm a human rights activist working in Palestine, reading stories of Old Testament violence, and I don't have the luxury of allegorizing the Jericho walls falling down? I'm just stuck wondering if God, if this person wrapped in these words fired the first bullet in the conflict that I'm still fighting against. See, what I'm trying to show you is that there's this one part of the scripture that 
we have avoided until now, but we just cannot avoid any longer. And that is that there are parts of the Bible we don't like. That if I were the editor-in-chief of the original manuscript, I would have sent it back to the author with some markups. And maybe your edits are different than mine, but no one reads the scripture without being confused, uncomfortable, or offended at some point. So this Sunday and next are devoted to the parts of the Bible that you don't like, the bits that you would edit if you could. Because read the Bible long enough, and at some point you'll want to throw it against a wall. If you get through your whole life without being offended by the scripture, you aren't reading it right. So we're going to cover a lot of ground really quickly today, and that's because I'm going to give you um, a a sweeping survey, like the 30,000 foot view, and next week Gemma is going to take you all down into the weeds. So get out your Bible and set your device aside. Remember, we are learning to get lost into the pages of this thing. And mark two passages out, Matthew chapter 5 and John chapter 6, because those are the spots that I'm going to meet you in in just a few minutes. Today, I want to hone in on a topic that you're going to cringe at when I say it. Submission. The postmodern world rejects any threat to the full autonomy of the individual, and that makes submission a curse word in our culture. Immediately you picture like the most traumatic scene from Handmaid's Tale. I mean, Psalm 119 reads to us like a hyper-religious psychopath who's lost touch with reality, or a young man who's grown up in a super legalistic home, or maybe best case scenario, a manipulative saint who's trying to woo the favor of God. I rejoice in following your statutes. I meditate on your precepts. I delight in your decrees. Submission. So let's begin with a bit of history. One of the core teachings of the Christian church is the authority of scripture. Meaning I submit my life to the words on these pages because I believe they're the very words of God himself. But where does that idea come from? Well, the root word of authority is author, meaning the one writing the story is the one who holds the authority. The early church believed that scripture was revelation. It was God revealing himself through, many, through the many authors and the many words that are found on these pages. And as they practiced that belief, they discovered something, that it works, that the words on this page, when practiced in my life in this world today, produce the fullest kind of living. This is a map for the everlasting story. And today, both inside and outside the church, we tend to live instead by what Eugene Peterson calls the replacement trinity. My holy wants, holy needs, and holy feelings. So once, the the journey of the modern person is one of satisfying my individual desires, needs. We come to the scripture already decided on what makes up a good life. So where the scripture aids in our preconceptions, great. And where it doesn't, feelings. What I feel, how I emotionally react to that information, I trust that feeling as the revealer of truth. If it doesn't feel right, don't trust it. Now, in no way am I trying to mock or demonize that approach. Wants, needs, and feelings are very much a part of spirituality and should be paid attention to. But there is one major blind spot in deriving all of the authority for living from within the self. It ignores the dysfunctional patterns that operate beneath the surface. Spiritual thinkers throughout history have called that the false self. And to summarize it way too simply... 
I would say this. There are some people that live with an inflated view of the self. And that's not as bad as it sounds. It just means that the imagined story that you're always writing in the back of your mind tends to be optimistic, that you assume success and you think the best of yourself. And that's what makes 360 peer review such a gut punch for some people. And then others live with the deflated view of self. That's also not as bad as it sounds. It just means that the one critique will live with you so much longer than the 10 compliments because your faults tend to live upfront in your imagination. Now, we can't detangle these parts of ourselves all on our own. If my inner world is my only source of authority, I can't live beyond the false self. My unique dysfunction gets to rule. And even if I read the Bible, I read it through the eyes of my fallen inner patterns because I am still the author. The authority in my life remains the false self regardless of how often I have a quiet time. So at this point, it would probably be helpful if I define some terms. When those early Christians called the Bible authority, what they meant is access point to reality. So whatever you define as the grounding reality of life is your true authority. Submission is choosing a reality outside of the self to live within. And people do this all the time. People submit to all sorts of things, to the American dream, to the postmodern vision of freedom, to the modern definition of equality, to a personal definition of success, or to the Bible. And submit to scripture, willingly give away authorship of your story to God and something deeper than the false self tends to happen. So I'm one of those doer types. My drug is accomplishment. I love setting goals and crushing them. So the primary way that I relate to God is through call and obedience. God assigns me a task and I crush the assignment. Last weekend, I'm humming along doing a short morning reading from 2 Samuel 9. This is my routine, and it's a beautiful story about David finding a lonely, crippled descendant of Saul's named Mephibosheth. So Saul was David's deceased enemy, and David goes to find Mephibosheth, not to judge him, but to show him mercy. This is verse 7. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for surely I will show you kindness. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now, I tend to read myself into the biblical story as the one who gets the assignment from God. I tend to read a story like this and imagine myself as David. Who, Lord, are you calling me to show this kind of mercy to? That sort of thing. But as I read this, I just heard the whisper of the Spirit nudging me beyond my false self-patterns and asking me this. Tyler, what if you're Mephibosheth? What if I don't want anything from you except for you to sit and eat every meal at my table? What if my great plan for redemption is to enjoy your company forever and you to enjoy mine? What if discovering rest, ease, and the lightest kind of joy is for you more powerful than fiery passion? See, that's a different author telling me a different story. It cuts all the way through my accomplishment addiction And when you experience that kind of thing, then suddenly Psalm 119 starts to make sense. God, give me more of that. Whatever inner tinkering you're doing through your word, keep working in me until everything within me is set back to its original design, until I know the dignity of being made in your image. This is why Dr. Robert Mulholland calls the scripture the intrusive, disruptive word of God. 
because it barges in uninvited to interrupt the false self and its operations beneath the surface of our lives. The replacement trinity massages the ego. The revelation of God relieves you of it. If the Bible doesn't upset you, you're not reading it right. And counterformation is disrupting and uncomfortable, but it's worth it. Has anyone watched uh, the Netflix series Unorthodox? If not, it's definitely worth watching. It's the true story of Deborah Feldman. It was originally a book who leaves the Hasidic community in South Williamsburg to start a completely new life in Berlin. So she is willingly choosing to leave one story and live in another. She is choosing a new authority and submitting to it. Now, it's what she wants, but it's not just a seamless, exciting coming-of-age story. It's challenging and uncomfortable, and it requires questioning and losing sleep and humbly looking her own faults and motives and assumptions in the mirror and staying with the discomfort. Every journey worth taking is challenging and uncomfortable in parts. So how do we invite that kind of uncomfortable but freeing counterformation into our lives? The sort where there's trepidation at first, but the life it produces is so real, we keep going back until we can't believe it, but we are finding our own way of saying, I rejoice in following your statutes. I meditate on your precepts. I delight in your decrees. Submission. That's the secret. So let's dust off this old-fashioned word and discover what we might be missing. The forgotten way of submission has three layers, reading, staying, and becoming. So we'll begin with reading. Uh, the French theologian William of St. Therese said, it is less what one reads than how one reads that counts. And today there's plenty of different views on the Bible. The same was true in Jesus' day. There were plenty of different views, but there were two major camps, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were upper-class, well-educated urbanites. They tended to live in central Jerusalem and had a relative amount of socioeconomic privilege, and they were super take-it-or-leave-it when it came to the Scripture. Now, they were priests, so they loved God, but they definitely had a certain amount of sophistication bias. Uh, when it came to the Bible, so they couldn't even, or they didn't even recognize the prophetic writings or the Psalms or the Proverbs as scripture inspired by God. Even the Torah, they were open to a wide range of interpretations on, and they didn't believe in anything supernatural. So any part that involves the miraculous or angels or even certain forms of prayer, they were just cutting out and discarding altogether. They essentially accommodated the Bible to the common culture of their day and found a way of reshaping their faith so that they fit within the culture without it costing them anything. I mean, when was the last time your allegiance to an alternative story really cost you something? I wonder if we might have more in common with the Sadducees than we care to admit. I am a privileged, educated urbanite, and this group certainly mirrors the progressives of today. They show us at least this, that you and I did not invent suspicion when it comes to anything claiming authority over our lives. That impulse that we feel is ancient. And there was a second camp called the Pharisees. You probably know them way better. I mean, they read scripture all the time. They loved the Bible. They 
read it privately every day. They read it publicly every day. They memorized such large portions of it, it makes your memory verse look embarrassing. But then over time, they added onto the Bible a bunch of what Jesus would call human traditions. In other words, they attached cultural ways of being and thinking and relating and voting to Scripture. They turned a revelation into a subculture. So what about Jesus? What does Jesus think of the Bible? Well, that brings us to Matthew 5. I told you that I would meet you here. I want to begin reading in verse 19, where Jesus is responding to the view of the Sadducees. He says, Anyone who sets aside the least of these commands and teaches others to do accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So the the word that's translated into English as sets aside is in ancient Greek literally means to untie. Jesus is using a word picture here. He's saying if you pull even a single thread, this entire garment will unravel. Okay, so he's out on the pick and choose way of reading. Now I imagine the Pharisees sitting in the crowd feeling pretty good about their stance at this point until Jesus utters the next sentence. Just keep reading right from there. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so that's not it either. I mean, Jesus seems to agree here with Dallas Willard. Actually, Jesus was first, so it's the other way around. But either way, Willard says, few more things are more terrifying in the spiritual arena than those who absolutely know, but are unloving, hostile, proud, superstitious, and fearful. John Ortberg summarizes it more concisely. To be filled with knowledge about the Bible, but to be unwashed by it is worse than knowing nothing at all. So how did Jesus read the Bible? Well, he said that part first. So let's jump back to the top of the paragraph we're reading from. This is verse 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, abolish is the ancient Greek word kataluo, which means to tear down or destroy. It was often used in reference to a building or an institution, very similar to the way we use the word deconstruct today. So Jesus' teaching was so radical that some thought he had come to deconstruct the Old Testament, the the story the Hebrew people had rooted themselves in. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm not here to deconstruct the author's story. I'm here to fulfill it. I am the end of the story. I am the completion of the promises. I am the climactic triumph. Jesus is essentially saying, you've been reading an incomplete story. I'm the completion. So Jesus claims that the entire Bible is a story about him, that the Old Testament all builds up to him and the New Testament all falls from him. But he is the hinge point at the center of the story. For truly, I tell you, Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And then after debunking both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he concludes his teaching on scripture this way. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And after saying that, Jesus went around practicing and teaching the Bible. In John 10, he said, the scripture cannot be broken. 
In Mark 12, he he says that David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared and then quotes from the Psalms. In Matthew chapter 4, referencing the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from where? From the mouth of God. So Jesus clearly believes that God is the author of the Bible, the authority, and he lives in submission to it. He also very clearly teaches that there's a direct correlation between your submission to the word and your experience in the kingdom of God. Least and greatest. That's how he divides it. So how you read the Bible matters. I love these words from Andrew Wilson. Ultimately, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified, risen, and exalted rescuer. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust in the Bible. I trust in the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he acts and talks as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. So reading along with Jesus eventually brings us to staying. Because I mean, what if I do love Jesus? What if I have decided to follow him? If I really do root my life in the practice and teaching of the biblical story, but that doesn't just relieve all the tension. I mean, that doesn't take away the problem passages or the disappointments or the times when the Bible doesn't match my experience or the moments when I want to look away because the God that I think I know suddenly looks ugly. I mean, what happens when the Bible claims to be life, but it, it sounds to me more like death? The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's not going to work for me. Is there a, a more thoughtful honest way. In John chapter 6, Jesus teaches his followers, eat my flesh and drink my blood, which was a prophetic teaching about his coming crucifixion and resurrection. But with the context they had at the time, I mean, it sounds dark and confusing and cultish. So I want to pick up in verse 60 of John chapter 6, the second place I told you to meet me. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? So in the wake of that moment of seeing something in God that they didn't like, running into teaching that they would prefer to edit, most of Jesus' followers left. What do we do when we come across something in scripture that doesn't line up with the God we think we know? Skip down to verse 67. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered them, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, Peter, who's speaking here, is not any less offended. He's not any less confused. He felt lost and alienated, just like all the rest of them. But his response was, I'm staying. Because I believe you are who you say you are, so I'll sort out the confusion with you. John 6 lands there. Here's how John 7 opens. After this, Jesus went around Galilee. That's how the next chapter starts. So Jesus doesn't immediately explain himself to Peter. 
He did not go out of his way to resolve his tension. He let Peter discover a deeper truth as he stayed along the journey with Jesus. Peter didn't blindly accept Jesus' words, and he didn't walk away either. Jesus promises life, but he just said something that sounds like death. Peter doesn't pretend it's life, but he sticks around because he believes Jesus is the source for life's deep questions. So even if he doesn't like or agree with or understand all of his explanations right away, he's going to stay. That's what you do when you run into a part of the Bible you don't like and want to look away from or just totally baffled by. You stay. And that does not mean you'll immediately receive a satisfying answer. Actually, you almost certainly won't. It means that discovering a deeper truth in relationship with Jesus along the journey is the invitation. Ruth Haley Barton says, most Christians give in to their resistance instead of paying attention to their resistance. And what she means is that most churches train people to read the Bible, right? Ask these questions of the passage. How was it written? Is it poetry? Is it narrative? Is it letter? Who was it written to? And what was the common culture and context at the time that it was written? And where does it fit into the arc of the biblical story? All those are important questions for rightly interpreting the scripture. But most churches stop there and they do not train people to let the Bible read you. And there is a second equally important set of questions to ask. What am I feeling in response to this text? Why do I feel this way? What do my reactions tell me about myself? And finally, and most importantly, am I willing to look at that part of myself in God's presence? See, this was a practice that the Desert Fathers and Mothers called Lectio Continua, where they would gather into a room together, someone would begin reading a passage of scripture, and then one by one, you'd see monk after monk get up and walk out of the room. Well, where are they going? Well, the practice was stay in the room until something read in scripture gives rise to something inside of you, then go immediately into three hours of silence and solitude. Sit before God and let that scripture continue reading you in his presence. Again, Ruth Haley Barton calls this the spiritual discipline of paying attention to which scriptures I ignore or avoid. It's such a shame that the church usually teaches one without the other because that creates relational distance. I mean, the most common response that we make to passages we disagree with or don't like or just don't understand is avoidance, right? I mean, there's a few people out there that get angry, some argue, some accuse, but by far the most common response is avoidance. Ignoring or or avoiding the parts of the scripture you don't like is a crisis of faith waiting to happen. I mean, all it takes is a freshman year lit class or a question that the church conveniently avoids and you feel like you're not allowed to ask or a friend whose story doesn't line up with the, with the story on the page. That's all it takes. But even if you never get all the way to crisis, biblical avoidance is still tragic because it robs me of intimacy. I mean, the Bible, meant to be the primary source of intimacy with God, actually becomes an elephant in the room, like a socially awkward environment for me and God. 
It's that one friend that you had a falling out with and shows up at the same party as you. Now, you don't talk to her, but you are hyper aware of her presence in the room. You've got her located in your peripheral all night because you have to be in this room together while keeping your distance from her. So even though you avoid interacting with her, she still dominates your experience of the party. And it's the same with the Bible. I mean, when we avoid parts of the Bible but stay in the room, we put extraordinary effort into avoiding those elephant passages, whatever they are for you, but they still dominate your experience of Scripture because you have to remain aware of them in order to dance around them. And the truth on the other side is that the tension places you have with Scripture are invitations to deeper intimacy with God. I was thinking this week uh, about an argument I got into with my friend Caleb. We were in Prospect Park, and two grown men, both of us pastors, got into a full-blown, voices-raised argument about a wiffle ball game. Embarrassing start. It ends this way. When finally, like, we've sorted it all out, Caleb said something to me I've always remembered. He said, look at us, man. Now we're on our way. And what he meant was, this is the point at which real friendship begins. Because we've seen the worst in each other now. And when you see the worst in someone else, there's only two options. You can retreat or you can go deeper. This is why Eugene Peterson says, believers argue with God. Skeptics argue with each other. So here's a method for having a healthy argument with God. And I'm borrowing this from Ruth Haley Barton. I've sat under her teaching personally, but she also writes about this in her book, Sacred Rhythms, if you'd like to explore it some more. Go to that part of scripture that you want to avoid. Read it slowly and attentively. And let it read you. Ask yourself, how do I feel about what is being said? Where do I find myself resonating deeply? Where do I find myself resisting or pulling back or wrestling with what the scripture may be saying? Just notice your inner dynamics without judging them. Just honestly notice them and let them be because they have much to teach us. Secondly, ask, why do I feel this way? What aspect of my life is being touched by this scripture? Third, what do my reactions tell me about myself? about my attitudes or my relating patterns or my perspectives or my behaviors? And then finally, am I willing to look at that part of myself in God's presence? See, the the presence of God exposes the false self. That's what all those demonic encounters in the gospels are about. God's presence in Jesus revealing what truly is unseen to the naked eye. But the presence of God also exposes the true self in all of its majesty. It's the image God put in you at creation that's been clouded by the competition of sin. The scripture is the revelation of God and the revelation of me. But without submission, I get neither. Without submission, I don't meet God there. I only force the God of my imagination onto the page. And without submission, I don't see my true self there. I just medicate the false self by drawing my preferred prescription off the page. Reading the Bible while remaining in control might educate me about Hebrew history, but it will not lead me to intimacy with God. Avoiding the passages I don't understand or disagree with or want to look away from will not lead me to intimacy. It will prevent intimacy. 
I mean, what if the greatest invitation waiting for you in Scripture is in wrestling with God over the very things you've been avoiding? What if you held your questions before him and you said, I don't understand this, and I'm afraid of what you'll tell me if I really ask and then listen, but like Peter, I'm staying? Where else would I go? You have the words of life. So let's look at this together in your presence, God. And in the end, as we stay with this process, submission eventually leads to becoming. In the Bible, you'll find two words for time, chronos and kairos. Chronos is where we get the word chronological. It just means time the way we measure it on all of our clocks. But kairos literally means the fulfilled time. It's a reference to those transcendent moments when it seems that the eternal is piercing the temporary, when what's promised on the pages of scripture becomes visible in the physical world around us. And there are three instances in the New Testament where we encounter the word kairos. The first is in reference to the arrival of Jesus. The second is in reference to the promised return of Jesus. And the third is in reference to the church. The implication is that when the people of God submit their lives to the word of God, the result is that the promises of God become visible in the physical world all around us. Another world breaks into this one in Jesus and in you and I when we submit to the word. And the great irony of this is that we avoid submission because we fear exclusivity. Right? If I submit my life to the word, then I'm eventually going to become one of those people that has to say, these are where the lines are drawn, and here's who's in, and here's who's out. And sadly, you might have had an experience when scripture was used for exclusivity, but that's a misapplication. It is not the story on the page. That person had it backwards. I mean, the irony is that submission is the most inclusive way to live. The early church gathered daily because they lived in an oral, largely illiterate culture. And so they gathered every day in the house of whoever could read, and they read the story. And they were formed by it together. The Bible is best interpreted in a radically diverse, challengingly inclusive community. That's where it first took root and flourished. A life without an outside authority is one that celebrates the ideas of inclusivity while playing by the rules of exclusivity. At the end of the day, I am the author. I am the source that I trust. But this story draws us into a community that is wildly diverse, filled with people that stretches all the way back across history who have found true, lasting life in this alternative story. It's an invitation to participate in that community and to participate in the life that they discovered. So I want to end today with a photo. This is Martyr's Cross. It's a little memorial in the middle of Broad Street in Oxford where three Anglican bishops were burned at the stake by Queen Mary, now known as Bloody Mary. And they were executed because they refused to keep the Bible out of the hands of common people like you and me. Queen Mary and all of English royalty thought that this book in your hands was a dangerous threat to the life they had so carefully built. And so these three martyrs were willing to be burned alive in public over a book because of a guy named William Tyndale. 
He was a linguistics professor at Cambridge, and he became fluent in both Hebrew and Greek, and that gave him access to the Bible uh, that not even the priests had at that time. So after reading the entire book cover to cover, he came to two conclusions. The first was the Bible really should function as the source of authority, the access point to reality for every person. And the second was that every follower of Jesus should be able to read the Bible in his or her own language. Now you're thinking, of course, and that's a given. The Bible's in the drawer at every Motel 6 in America. But in Tyndale's day, it was illegal, based on a law passed in 1408, to translate the Bible into Middle English. So Tyndale escaped to Germany, hid under the protection of Martin Luther, and from a basement somewhere outside of Munich, translated the Bible into English. The first ever English translation of the New Testament was in his handwriting. And then he smuggled 18,000 copies back across the border into England where secret meetings and homes began to break out where people would read this old story at the volume of a whisper, fearing for their lives but unable to look away from the page and they were being formed by it together just like the old days. Now eventually Henry VIII got word of this and he personally purchased 6,000 of Tyndale's copies and had them burned on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. Now pause for just a second and take in the state of the church. The Bible is being burned on the steps of the church building. He then went on to pass a law that all of Tyndale's Bibles were to be destroyed and the penalty for anyone who got found with one was immediate execution. Tyndale was eventually discovered by a spy uh, commissioned by King Henry um, who uh, arrested him, tortured him for a full year, and after Tyndale still refused to to recant, 12 months into waterboarding, he too was burned publicly in the midst of the city of London. His last words were a prayer, God, open the king of England's eyes. God answered that prayer. Henry VIII recanted a few years after the execution and 85% of the King James Bible was then copy and pasted word for word from Tyndale's handwriting from that German basement. If you read a more literal translation of the scriptures today, like the ESV or the New American Standard or the NIV, which we use here at this church, a huge percentage of the Bible that you are holding was copied directly from Tyndale's translation. His life should leave you with a question. What is it about this old library of scrolls that would make you suffer and die just so I can have a copy of it on my nightstand? Or look at it from the opposite perspective. What is it about this book that made historical leaders in power pass laws and even torture and kill to keep this thing off my nightstand? I mean, why would the Roman Empire and Queen Mary's England and Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union outlaw the Bible altogether or at least place censorship bans on it? And why, if that's how history's superpowers have treated the Bible, does the modern West not see this story in my hands as a threat to the life they so carefully constructed because in our time there's no need to outlaw the Bible because we've stripped it of authority and we read it without submission because the Bible for us has been whittled down into a book of self-help principles and comforting religious phrases that we pick and choose from so it's not a threat anymore 
You see, without submission, there is no power. There is no alternative story reshaping us from the inside out. There is no threat. There's no need to burn it and keep it out of our hands because it stays in our heads and never in our bones. An alternative kingdom is just another worldview. The story of Jesus is not a threat to the story of the world because we have forgotten the way of submission. So how do we respond? Well, for many of you, today is simply an invitation to submit. God, I will let the scripture read me. I invite you to come in and do surgery on me as I lay my eyes on the story on the page. My good friend John Mark Comer says, the Bible and its story has brought down empires without a single shot. Just by bringing to bear the power of a truer reality, this is what we want the Bible to do to us. That's submission. For others, the invitation is curiosity because you might have settled into a place you're comfortable with related to scripture, but it's not changing you. You've settled on convictions without doing deep work with God. You've gotten numb to the awkwardness of avoiding the hard places. So even if there is an elephant in the room, it doesn't matter to you anymore. And there's an invitation here to become curious again. To say to God, come in and disrupt me. I'm not afraid of it. I welcome it. And ultimately, this is about trust. For some today is really personal because the scripture has been used in your life as a weapon and you have been made to feel like an outsider in God's world so your guard is up every single time someone like me opens the contents of this book in your presence and I think today there's an invitation to trust not to trust me but to trust God because he might be saying to you trust me that I know you all the way through that I'm taking you on the journey of your life. That it won't always be easy, but that I'll be gentle and the place that I have in mind to end really is life, not death. So do you hear the still small voice of the Spirit inviting you deeper? We're living right now in a historic moment together. It's a tragic one for sure, but it's also historic. The world we built in all of our busyness and distraction and frenzy is coming apart at the seams. It's been brought to its knees by tiny invisible bacteria that we don't know how to stop. The whole world is being humbled right now. But that'll pass. I mean, give it six months or a year or five years, who knows? But at some point it'll pass. And then we'll start to rebuild some version of the life we had before. So how will you be different because you lived through this historic moment? We've all been driven into our personal wilderness and we'll all come back out of it one day, but only the humble will come out stronger than they went in. So let the temporary collapse of this world wet your appetite for the one that lasts forever. Let it humble you. Learn the way of submission again. Can we be people humble enough to come back out of the wilderness stronger 
Jesus, just on behalf of this community, Jesus, we repent. We repent for all the times we've thought of the Bible as an obstacle to overcome to get to you, not as a revelation of who you are to be received. We repent for passively thinking of the Bible as a reluctant entrance requirement, not our holy family history. We repent for resembling common people pretending your history is a primitive speed bump to put up with, not an invitation to truly come alive. And we thank you. We thank you for men and women who have gone before us, who have given their lives to preserve the story and put it into the hands of common people like us. So we, we humble ourselves before you now, gentle, fiery God. Will you remake us in your image? Amen. <laughs>